Let's pray. Lord, we gather as your people to listen to your word and you tell us that the world sees the preaching of the gospel as foolishness for people to gather together every Sunday and to open a book that is over a couple of thousand years old and to listen to what they consider to be the voice of a dead God. And yet we know otherwise because you are alive within our hearts. You have declared to us what is true. You have given us faith so that we can believe it. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so today we come and we want to listen to your voice. And we pray and plead that it would powerfully impact us in the way in which we look at life and the way in which we look at serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What do you want in life? What are your desires? That's really what the Ten Commandments is all about. You shall not covet. The question is, are our desires actually good? The final commandment begins in a different way than the other commandments. All the other commandments address issues of actions. This commandment gets right to the core of the heart and addresses the heart, addresses us, you might say, from the inside out rather than the outside in. In Exodus chapter 20, we read the commandment, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. But I ask you also turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 19, you might say, as a test case in covetousness. You'll find that on page 303 of the Pew Bible. We read now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Nahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would, uh, would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she uh, sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, 
You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, curse God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, You have killed and also taken possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. J.D. Rockefeller was co-founder of Standard Oil Company in 1870. He became the richest man in the world. The first American to be worth a billion dollars. A billion dollars. He was a great philanthropist. In fact, his philanthropic efforts really set the stage for modern uh, uh, philanthropic organizations. But when he was asked, how much is enough? J.D. Rockefeller responded, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. He was very honest about the human heart and the human condition to want more. We always want more. Now I'm confident that no one in this room will have the equivalent wealth today of what J.D. Rockefeller owned in the late 1800s or early 1900s. But I can promise you this, everyone here today has the same spirit of covetousness. The same spirit of longing for more. And that's because we have the same sinful hearts as Adam and Eve who couldn't withhold from eating the forbidden fruit. They had to have it from David who had to have Bathsheba. From the Apostle Paul himself even who confesses his own covetous heart. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee of the strictest observance of the law. And yet even he could not escape covetous desires. He writes in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, Paul is saying, when I really realized that I was a sinner, it's when I got to the Tenth Commandment. Because all the others I felt like I could keep in some external fashion. When I got to the Tenth, 
It pierced me through the heart. And it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. There's a restlessness in each one of us. A discontent, a longing for more. It's a universal condition. In fact, God has actually made us with desires. He's made us with longings. He's made us with the desire to go further, to go beyond what we have currently, to expand, to create, to conquer with an adventurous spirit. Then he put Adam in the garden and he says, rule and subdue it. Expand it. Make it even greater than it is today. And so within the heart of mankind, men and women, is this adventurous spirit, this great drive within each of us. Without it, we would have no wheel, we would have no light bulb, no computer. There wouldn't be penicillin, penicillin today or modern medicine. Europeans would have never discovered the new world. There'd be no trip to the moon. But the righteous desire that God has put in us, the righteous drive to conquer, to expand, to go beyond, that has been twisted by sin into what is called covetousness. To, be, to delight in what others have. To long for what belongs to someone else. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Your, his male servant or female servant. His ox, his donkey. Anything that is your neighbor's. So the desires that God has given to us have now been twisted so that we want what other people have. Have got to have what they have. Now, we want to use 1 Kings 21 as sort of a test case this morning. But for the structure of the sermon, the two main points that I want to give, I actually want to use Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let me read it for you. The writer of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So two main points here. The first is this, fight against covetousness. The second is to be content with what we have. So what are we to do? We're to fight against covetousness. That's what the writer of Hebrews says when he says, keep your life free from the love of money. In other words, keep your life free from the entanglements of covetous desires. Now, going back to 1 Kings 21 we ask the question, what is covetousness? There's two answers to that. The first is this, desiring what others possess. Desiring what others possess. Ahab wanted something that didn't belong to him. He wanted the vineyard that Naboth had. I've got to have something else. I've got to have what my neighbor has. I've got to have what someone else has that looks so sweet to me. And the interesting thing is, verse 1 tells us it was right beside the palace of King Ahab. He looked at it every day. He could go out on his veranda and he could look down. There's this beautiful vineyard, these grapes that are growing. They look luscious and beautiful. It would be perfect for me. I could walk right out my back door into my vineyard. I could grow my own vegetables. I could have the finest fare if only I had Naboth's vineyard. It became something that he had to have. And so he approaches Naboth. Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. 
Ahab's willing to pay for it. He's willing to swap out land. But I gotta have it. Coveting is wanting what other people have. We covet houses and spouses, just like in Exodus 20. We covet cars and electronics, coffee makers, tractors. We covet baby clothes, furniture, vacations, musical talent. We cover the gr- uh, covet the grades and academics that other people have. What achievements that other people have achieved. Body types. We covet spiritual successes. We even covet friendships. We long to be friends with that person over there and somebody else's friends with them. And how can I get in to that circle of friends? We covet the invitations that people receive. Why didn't I receive an invitation? We covet the family life that other people have. If only my family was like theirs. Theirs looks so perfect from the outside. Maybe I can create that in my own home, but I've got to have that. We covet the successes of others and the recognition that they get. So what is covetousness? It means to desire what other people possess. But secondly, it's this. Discontent with God's provisions. Discontent with God's provisions. Verse 3 says this. Naboth said to Ahab, after the request had been made, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now Naboth's response here is not just, I like where my vineyard is. It's a beautiful vineyard. It's rich land. It grows vines well. I like it. No, it's something different. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The law had made a provision. If someone became so poor that they could not feed themselves, then they could sell the land that had been given by God. But that was not the case here. Naboth was doing just fine. And he knew the law of God. The land belonged to the Lord and the Lord gave it out as he saw fit. He parceled out the land in various allotments. And he said, this was the allotment for your forefathers. Naboth could not break the law and sell it. You see, what's taking place here is Ahab knows that this is land that God has specifically given to Naboth's family. In the providence of God, He has distributed His gifts. He has distributed His property as He sees fit. And to desire what other people have is really to shake our fist at God and say, God, You have given them more than me, or at least you've given them what I want, and you haven't given it to me. And so it's a discontent with what God has provided. It's rooted in a hostility against the Lord. One writer, Janie Ortland, talks about how she longed for a car. She and her husband, Ray, had gone over to the University of Aberdeen in Scotland that he might study for a number of years for his Ph.D. They had sold everything that they owned in the United States, their house, their car, all their possessions, and they had invested it with a Christian uh, investor. Unfortunately, after their fourth child was born, the Christian investor uh, went belly up. They had no money. 
They had to sell the car that they had purchased in Scotland. And for two years, she walked back and forth to the drugstore to get food, medicine. She took buses within the larger city of Aberdeen to get Christmas gifts and all the things necessary for a family of six. And she coveted having a car again. And so she said, I made a deal with God. If you will give me a car, I will be happy. Well, two years later, he gave her a car through a generous gift from their parents. She says, was I happy? Sure, I was happy for a few months. But we had a hard time fitting six people into that car. And their gift really wasn't quite big enough. What, what I started coveting was a minivan. I needed something else. Eventually, they moved back to the United States. And she was a suburban soccer mom. She had a full-time job. She was carpooling kids around, plus all the responsibilities with Ray's job and various ministry opportunities. Was I happy with our minivan? No, she says. I was coveting a second car. Any car would do, Lord. I promise you this time, I will be truly happy. You know that experience. I know that experience. It's not wrong to want another car, but what is wrong is when the desire becomes discontent and when the desire begins to rule our hearts so that unless we have this thing we will not be happy but the thing with all of our coveting is that we will never be satisfied the title of the sermon i put on there is the world is not enough if you're a james bond fan you know that's a title of a james bond film the world is not enough stuff breaks things wear out we get something now and tomorrow we're no longer satisfied with it it will never be enough ahab thought if only i could get this field from naboth it would be enough and i would be happy and you know as well as i do he wouldn't be happy it would be something else because it's always something else for us too So why are we to fight then against covetousness? If that's what we're called to do, we're called to fight against it. Well, covetousness leads to other sins. Covetousness is the gateway, you might say. And when we pass through it, we pass through into other sins. Desiring the downfall of my neighbor whose possessions I covet. You know what it's like to covet something that someone else has. Maybe it's just their way of life, their style of life. And maybe you just wish there'd be a few times in their life when they wouldn't find success. When they would just have to struggle a little bit. There's an Aesop's fable. It tells of a covetous man to whom Zeus would grant a wish with the condition that his neighbor would get twice as much of what he wished for. Well, this completely displeased the man. He was unable to bear the thought of a neighbor getting twice as much as him. So he wished that he would have one eye put out. Sometimes when we go through the gateway of covetous desires, what we're actually longing for is the downfall of our neighbor, that they would not experience the joys and the blessings of what they have received from the Lord. You can think of other sinful ways we react to our covetous desires and act on them. 
covetousness actually causes us to be miserable and unpleasant to be around. When you're longing for something and your envy is not satisfied, you become miserable as a person. You're unpleasant. No one wants to be around you because you're so unpleasant. It's exactly what was taking place here. Ahab lay down on his bed. He turned his face away and would eat no food. Jezebel, his wife, comes. Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and he would not give me the vineyard. He's pouting. And he's pouting so much that his wife notices. You see, when we give in to these covetous desires, we become miserable people. We become so miserable that no one else even wants to be around us. Covetous desires also cause us to steal what doesn't belong to us. Isn't that in effect what has just taken place here? Jezebel, the wife, a wicked woman in her own right, comes up with this great plan to kill Naboth and steal what is his by divine right. Sometimes that can be the end of covetous desires that we steal what doesn't belong to us. Covetous desires can also cause us to spend what we do not have. Ahab is willing to spend whatever. I will give you a different vineyard. I will give you a vineyard that's even better than the vineyard that you have. Now, he's the king, and maybe he has plenty of money, but you know as well as I do in our culture in particular today with all the free-flowing credit that we can easily spend what we do not have to gain what we should not get. Covetous desires can also cause us to fight for what we want. Interestingly, in the book of James, James addresses this issue in chapter 4, and he says, What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Covetousness leads to fighting. And then finally, covetousness causes us to become workaholics to get what we want. We might want that new car. And it might be a legitimate desire. But it becomes an illegitimate thing to grasp after when we become a workaholic and so focused on that one thing that we neglect other callings in life to earn enough money to get it. Because I've got to have it. Do you see how all of life gets twisted and distorted and bent when our covetous desires take over our hearts and we have to have this thing and we have to have it so much so that I'm willing to contort and twist all of life around me in order to have it. And then finally this, covetousness ultimately leads to death. Naboth was killed in this little section of Scripture. But the voice of the Lord finally speaks. Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? In the place where dogs licked up the body of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. 
You see, ultimately, covetousness leads to death and not just physical death. It's an eternal death. Paul warns us on a number of occasions, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And I could read you numerous examples just in Paul's letters where he says the same thing. When covetousness grabs a hold of the human heart, then it's evidence that we do not belong to Christ. That we have let another master rule us. Martin Luther viewed this commandment as one that particularly addressed upright and religious people. Those whitewashed tombs that Jesus spoke of. People who look good on the outside, but on the inside, they are sinful and corroding and corrupt. The 19th century English Baptist Pastor Andrew Fuller said it this way, it has long appeared to me that this species of covetousness will in all probability prove the eternal overthrow of more characters among professing people than almost any other sin. In other words, this can destroy your life faster than anything else. Just consider some of the Bible characters. Achan, he had to have these few things from Jericho. And he hid them under his tent. And he was killed for them. What about King Saul? Who finally fell on his own sword when the kingdom was ripped from him. What about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? They sold their field and they brought the proceeds, but only part. Because they wanted to keep some for themselves. And that day they fell dead before the Lord. Friends, we are to fight against covetousness and one of the things that we have to do to fight against it is to resist the little voice in us that says you deserve it isn't that what Jezebel came to her husband and said she says very clearly uh, do you not rule do you not rule over Israel you deserve this you're the king take what you want sometimes there are voices around us that are saying that Sometimes it's within saying that. And we have to resist it. And the only way that we can do that is the real second point of this sermon is this. And I'll try to be brief because I know we're out of time. And that is to be content with what you have. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The problem for all our seeking, all our spending, all our getting is we're not satisfied. Contentment does not come with getting more. So how do you become content? Well, really the secret, as we've already read from Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 tells us very clearly that Paul says he has learned the secret of being content. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What Paul is saying here is this, whether it's in plenty or in hunger, abundance or in need, whether I'm high or whether I'm low, both are a test for me to see 
will I be content with the Lord or will I want something else? Because when I'm in a low condition, I want what others have so that I can raise my condition. When I'm in a high condition, I realize this is not enough for me. It will never be enough for me. Remember the movie, The World is Not Enough. It was never designed to be enough. In fact, it was designed to point us to have success and joy and satisfaction in the one who can give us all that we need. This is simple. This is simple, but it is very important to understand. Only an infinite God can satisfy all our desires for all of eternity. Did you hear that? Only an infinite God can satisfy all of our desires for all of eternity. There is no way that something in this life can satisfy all your desires for all of eternity. There's always going to be seeking more unless you find your joy in Jesus and in Him alone. So when we do that, here's what it looks like. Contentment means, number one, praising God in all circumstances. Listen to what Job said, who lost almost everything. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, no matter whether I'm up high or down low, I have everything in life that I want or I don't. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you can find things to praise God for in this life, it turns our hearts outside of themselves so that they're no longer bent inward and wanting this thing, this possession that I must have. All of a sudden, seeing all the things that God has done for me and given to me, and I begin to praise Him for it. Not only that, as I told the children earlier, begin to praise God for all the things that I want that other people have. Lord, thank You that You've given that to them. Thank You that You've blessed them in that way. And I call down more blessings on my neighbor. You see, when you're content in Jesus Christ, you can call down blessings, not curses, on your neighbor and long for their well-being. Secondly, it means serving God in all circumstances. Listen to this. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of God. My food, that's what satisfies me, what fills the hunger of my heart. My food is to do the will of God. In other words, what I'm trying to put in my heart as the things that I desire are not simply the possessions out there, but what I long to do is the will of God. And it becomes the thing that satisfies me when I am able to live it out and please the Lord. And thirdly this, it looks like waiting upon God for a better reward. Waiting upon God for a better reward. Peter said to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. Everything, Lord. Jesus responded, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or home or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and in the age to come. You see, the key, the key to being content is looking at things in life for what they are 
and realizing there's something far better that's yet to come. And for those who are able to be content in the Lord, to know that He is with us, to know that the secret to contentment is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is my vision is raised from this earthly life to the life that's yet to come, and there's something far better for me. And these little, little trinkets that I can hold in my hand mean nothing compared to the riches of the glory of God. Friends, all these things come through the power of the cross, don't they? They all come through the power of the cross. We praise God because of the power of the cross. We serve God in all circumstances because of the power of the cross. And we wait upon the reward that's yet to come because of the power of the cross. When the cross is greatest in our lives, then all of a sudden, everything else in our life falls into place so that our relationship with the things that we covet all, be, all of a sudden becomes things that I can either take or leave because I have Jesus. And if we have Him, we have not just enough, but we have everything. Let me pray for us. Lord, we all... We all, like sheep, have gone astray in regards to this commandment. And we ask now that You would help us to be content in You, to find satisfaction in You, to praise You for the things that You've given to us, to long to serve You, and to wait as all the saints of old waited upon a better reward. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.